am Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And this is History and Hope, the church history podcast from a Baptist perspective. Today we're going to talk about a somewhat controversial topic in our circles, um, Calvinism. Where did it come from? What is it? So we'll start with what is Calvinism? Mark, are you a Calvinist? No. <laughs> come on, own up. I, Mark, I, he's a clo- your I closet, not, your closet Calvinist. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. Tell all of our listeners, all three of them. I am sympathetic to many of the Calvinist <laughs> points, but I would not identify myself as a Calvinist. Is it true that no independent Baptist is a Calvinist? No, that's no. not true. I'm not going to out them, though. If you are a Calvinist independent Baptist, your secret is safe with me. What was the question? What is Calvinism? Basically, okay, so comes from Calvin, John Calvin. John Calvin was one of the original reformers, so 1500s. He's a little bit younger than Martin Luther. Uh, and he follow, he formulated a way of talking about salvation, the order of salvation, so how it happens, sort of step one, step two, where's faith happen. And he followed a man named St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the uh, 400s. And Calvin felt accurately that the Catholic Church had made the gospel into a workspace religion. You basically, God did his part and you did your part. Right. So you did the best you could and God would make up for it, which is not scriptural. Luther said justification by faith alone, no works. Calvin said, okay, that means God does all the work, which everyone agrees with. God does all the saving. And he goes back to Augustine who said, God does more than you think he does. And so Calvinism is his, he originally formulated to refer to the process of salvation from a lost person to a saved person. But what we know is Calvinism really comes out of the, there was a disagreement after John, after uh, John R. Rice, before John R. Rice, after Calvin at a place called Dort. And a group of people said, we don't like what Calvin's saying. We have these protests. And they gave them to these to Calvinists. And Calvinists came up with five points. So the five points of Calvinism came out of not Calvin himself, though he produced a system, came out of the Synod, Synod of Dort. And they are what we no doubt today to be total depravity, so TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. How you interpret those determines what you think about Calvinism. But everyone basically agrees that's what that's what the five points of Calvinism are. Uh, so what do they mean? At that time, if you're not a Calvinist, but you still believe the gospel and the Bible was true, and you weren't a Catholic, you were you followed a guy named Arminian or Arminius, and so you were an Arminian. So the Arminians had their five points that were that were the opposite of Calvinist. So Arminians versus Calvinist. And they went toe-to-toe. The Arminians lost at that council mm-hmm. and kind of got persecuted after that. And Calvinism became the, the mainstay of the Reformation for a long time after that. So Calvinism, it's the basic concept is God is in control and does everything related to salvation. So the order of salvation would be 
before the creation, God chose, out of his wisdom, he elected a group of people. That's the first step. That's what a Calvin, an Arminian believes that God knew their faith, then chose them. Calvinist believes first God knew a group of people. He elected them. Not based on anything in them. Because Calvin was really strong on there's nothing in us that made God choose us. Which is a good concept. There's nothing special about us. So God chose these people. He elected them. Then Jesus was sent to the save. So then Jesus died. Who did he die for? He died for the people that were elected. Right. And the argument there is if he died for people who weren't saved, he sort of lost or he, he couldn't save them. And they got away. So Calvinist says that God chose a group of people. Then he sent his son to die for those people. And the chosen group of people follows uh, falls under um, the you and tulip unconditional election. Um, yeah. So that, so yeah, tulip works, but it's not an order. It's not an order. It's a, it's, yeah. an, it's a way to remember it. But yeah, so yeah. the first step is unconditional. Election. Unconditional. So that means there's nothing in the elect that caused them to be elected. It was not their foreseen faith. It was not any good works. It was unconditional. And some people say that it was arbitrary, but that's not true. God doesn't do anything arbitrary. Just because you don't know why he did something doesn't make it arbitrary. So uh, I'm not a Calvinist, in case you were wondering. Um, I know people think I am sometimes, but just because you're nice to Calvinist doesn't mean you're a Calvinist. Why else would you be nice to him? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of yeah. So there, Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow, he also pre- did predestine to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's that's where they're pointing right. to for unconditional election. Yeah. So he elected them, then he saved them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if it's so, the whole point was. Man doesn't do anything of value. God does it all. So God elects them unconditionally. Then he sends Jesus to die for them. Limited atonement. And it doesn't mean limited like Jesus couldn't have saved more. Every Calvinist that I know of says that Jesus, his sacrifice was... Yes, I've heard yeah. it say, explained it's sufficient for sufficient all, for but all. efficient for the elect. So it wasn't that Jesus didn't have enough of a sacrifice to die for everybody. It was sufficient to save every single person on the planet. That's what Calvinists believe. But it wasn't meant for everyone on the planet. Right. So it, it was, was only efficient for the elect. Right. It actually only did something for those who are elect. So that's limited atonement. So limited doesn't mean it wasn't good enough. It just wasn't intended. It wasn't applied. So they're elected. Jesus dies for them. Then... You've got the people that show up. So, you know, 200 years later, Jesus is dead, gone to heaven now. Someone's born who's elect. What happens? And this is kind of where Calvinism revolves around. If man is so bad that he can't do anything, how does he get saved? So Calvin was drawn from Augustine. Augustine was in a debate with a guy named Pelagius. And Pelagius said man was a little bit good, just good enough. He had a little bit good in him that he could go looking for God. Because God wouldn't want you to do anything that you weren't able to do. So therefore, Pelagius said, you must be able to seek God. So you seek God, and then God saves you. Okay, that's heresy. Augustine was right, and Calvin was right to oppose it. Pelagianism is a heresy that continues to this day that says you can seek God. The problem with that is the Bible specifically says no man seeks after God. There is none righteous, no one. No one looks for God. Okay, so that's true, and everyone believes that. Calvinists, Arminians, 
whatever classify you're in, if you're not a Pelagian or a Catholic or a heretic, if we don't seek God, what happens? God seeks us. And so we know from the Bible that the shepherd goes looking for the sheep. So God seeks us. But Calvinists say, so the T, total depravity, if we are totally depraved, if every part of us is bad, when Christ comes to us with the offer of salvation, why would we want to accept it? And this is this is the best point Calvinism has, in my opinion. As a non-Calvinist, this needs to be taken seriously. If a lost person who is completely lost, why would they accept the offer? Why would they want to follow God? They didn't want to follow him before. Why now? So Calvinists will say, because of their total depravity, something has to happen to them so that they will accept the gospel. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes to them. and what, So this is the I, irresistible grace. That's fallen out of favor a long time ago. Now it's most people call it effectual calling. So the Holy Spirit calls the elect in a way that will produce a response. So again, it's all about God doing it, not man. So they say based on places like John 3, where it says the Holy Spirit, you know, you're born again. The Calvinist says that the Holy Spirit comes to the elect, gives them a new heart. With that new heart, the new heart then wants to accept Christ. Because the, you know the issues of life come out of the heart. So God gives them a new heart, regenerate it, and it's sort of the same moment almost. That new heart then says, I want Jesus. And so the Spirit calls them in a way that will cause them to want to accept Christ. And that's a big catch right there. Yeah. Uh, and then the last point, perseverance of the saints, that means that you don't earn your way into heaven. You didn't. You don't keep your own salvation. It's the least controversial point of Calvinism. It means that God... So they call it perseverance of the saints because the Bible says that those who believe will continue. They will stay faithful. They will not give up the faith. And Yeah, they, so Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So no saint falls away. Right. No true conversion. No true conversion is lost. So, so a, a sort of a blunt way to put it is eternal security, but that's too... It's too, it's too formulaic. It, it leaves out the human in, in the process. So they say perseverance of the saint, which is, I think most of us agree, true believers will always be true believers, and they don't lose their salvation and gain it again. I think most of us believe that. Uh, but I guess if you're an Arminian, you don't believe that, actually. So some Arminians believe you can lose your salvation. Yeah. So, But a Calvinist believes once you're saved, you then persevere. It's not once saved, always saved, because that takes out the act of believing which they believe God gives you and, and preserves. Okay, so that's that's tulip. The irresistible part, irresistible grace, that's where, I, I believe that's the hinge, for me at least. An Arminian will say, you cannot find God. You will not seek God. You will never look for God. You are a lost sinner. You also have total depravity. So unless God does something to you, you're lost forever. So an Arminian will believe that the Holy Spirit gives grace to enable you to believe beforehand. And the technical term is prevenient grace, grace that goes before. So God is going to send you the gospel, but you can't accept it. So before he sends you the gospel, the Holy Spirit gives you grace to give you the ability. So God, like Arminius was pretty strong, he basically pressures you. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and pressures you and then gives you the gospel. And unless you resist that pressure, actively resist it, it'll lead you to salvation. 
kind of sounds like a semantics argument between does he change your heart and then you want to so i mean they they are saying different things but the end result seems to be the same thing and that's why arminianism and calvinism are not enemies catholicism is the enemy right pelagianism is the enemy arminianism and calvinism both get to the same place god completely saves by grace they just disagree on how it's done Mm -hmm. now a pelagian or a semi-pelagian will say that you go to god first and then he responds that's heresy and both arminians and calvinists disagree now one thing about arminianism is it does not require losing your salvation you can be an arminian and still believe in eternal security a lot of people say i'm not an arminian well if it's only because of eternal security that's not what makes an arminian uh, so Arminianism, it gets, it's gotten a bad rap over the past thousand years or 500 years because it, a lot of it was associated with heresy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So Calvinism is the idea that God does everything. He elects, he dies for the elect, he calls the elect, he regenerates the elect. They then want to respond and then he keeps them. And the goal here, and this is why Calvinism is not evil. The goal here is to put everything on God. That's the goal. Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God to take it all out. Of, they were, they were re, it's a reaction to the Catholics who said man does some, God does some, which is heresy. And that's right. that people will be lost if they believe that. So Calvinist said, you don't do anything. God does it all for you. And then you respond even in the act of believing. So that's what Calvinism is. Um, so what's the difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism? Because that's something that's so, sort right. of always used as the actual enemy right? Uh, to debate Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism is not an extreme form of Calvinism. It's not super-Calvinism? It's not super-Calvinism. You know, you, got, you have a kid and then you have a hyper-kid. That just means like a regular kid with more energy. It's not Clark Kent and Superman. Right. <laughs> so there's Calvinism and then there's some, another set of beliefs that, that overlap with Calvinism called hyper-Calvinism. And they're not the same. They believe some of the same things, but the hyper is a different thing than Calvinism. Okay, so a Calvinist believes that God elects, and then he calls and people respond because their hearts are changed. A hyper-Calvinist says, hyper-Calvinist is a little complicated, and there's like five different versions of it, but at its core, Adam, when Adam was created, a Calvinist, an Arminian, most of us, basically Orthodox believers, say that when Adam was created, he had the ability to obey God because he was perfect, no sin. And so God gave him a command, don't eat of the fruit. But there's also other unspoken commands like don't kill people and don't murder, don't steal. Adam could keep all those. He had the ability to. Then he sinned and he lost the will to obey. But as we all know, no one is forced to lie. You choose to lie. You could not lie if you didn't want to. And everyone ends up lying, but they have the ability to not lie, just like Adam didn't. Okay, hyper-Calvinists will then say, Adam was not created with the ability to believe the gospel. Therefore, all of Adam's descendants do not have the ability to believe the gospel. They're incapable of it. So you can't preach the gospel to people who can't believe it, right? That that makes sense. They can't believe it. You can't preach it to them. And so what has to happen, so a hyper-Calvinist says, first, God saves them, then they come to you, and then you talk to to them about the gospel. Well, that's obviously a problem, because how would they ever hear the gospel 
if you don't tell them first. Yeah. So a hyper-Calvinist says they can't believe the gospel because they don't have the ability, so don't preach it to them. A Calvinist says, first of all, you don't know who's elect. The Bible says preach it to everybody, and everyone has the ability. They just don't want to. Right. And that's a big difference. Not wanting to and not being able to. So it's sort of like you are married. You have a good relationship with your wife. Can you push her down the stairs? Yes. You have the ability. But on another level, can you push her down the stairs? No. No. It's not that you don't have the physical ability. It's like you just wouldn't do that to your wife because you love her. Because you, you don't so have So contrary to your nature. Yeah. Your nature says, I not can't do that. So that's what the gospel says. So a Calvinist says they're able to believe if they wanted to, but they don't want to. And every Calvinist who's a, Cal- who's a real Calvinist preaches the gospel to everybody. Because the Bible says. You don't know. How are they here without a preacher? And a Calvinist says, I'll be that preacher. God chooses to save them. Great. But I first have to preach the gospel. So Calvinists will say, no one ever got saved without being preached to first. And since you don't know who's elect, you preach to everybody. Right. And I think that's one of the primary critiques of Calvinism is the effect on evangelism. Right. Because you because God elects, then why do you need to go out and evangelize? Right. Yeah. If God's already decided who's going to be saved, then why do you want to just wait till they get saved? And the answer is because that's not how God wants to do it. God says, I want you to preach to them and then I'll save them. And there's you can't argue with that. You can't say, well, Calvin, God said it. That's what we do. And Calvinists believe the Bible just like we do. And so hyper-Calvinists don't believe the Bible like that. They say, you wait till they come to you, and then you talk to them, after they're saved. Which means evangelism is zero. There's no evangelist. So hyper-Calvinist does not evangelize. They do not spread the gospel because they're waiting for people to come to them already saved. So hyper-Calvinism should be opposed, and has been opposed. And it's about wiped out. Like It's not really a problem. There's, there's some pockets it would seem hard for their beliefs to self-perpetuate since they don't evangelize. Yeah. It's, there's some pockets in like rural America where religion's popular like in the South. So it really came to a head in the 1800s. Late 1700s, a guy named Andrew Fuller, who everyone will know because he was partners with William Carey. William Carey went to India. Andrew Fuller stayed and supported him. Andrew Fuller was like the theological and the financial backer. Carey was his close friend. He went to India. Andrew Fuller and Carey were both five-point Calvinists. Explicitly, they called themselves strict Calvinists. She was, I agree with all five points. Yet Carey, obviously, was evangelistic because he went to India and preached mm-hmm. the gospel and sacrificed his life. And Andrew Fuller was the same way. So Andrew Fuller said hyper-Calvinism. He was a hyper-Calvinist, and then he realized it was wrong. He combated. He said, we need to fight this. So he wrote a book called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, which comes out of King James. The point being, the gospel is worthy of all acceptation. So you preach it to all. And it was so good that it basically killed hyper-Calvinism at that time. It dragged on a little bit until the late 1800s to Spurgeon's time. Right. Because I remember Spurgeon was is a Calvinist, which if Calvinism is evil, then that's a problem. Uh, but So Spurgeon's a Calvinist, and but he has open altar calls yeah. in his sermon. Yeah. And so hyper-Calvinists would come to him and complain that how dare he have an open altar call. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know who the elect are. Yeah. So he Thro- yeah, throwing pearls before swine right. was what they like to say. So Spurgeon would get up there and tell a crowd of 5,000 or 10,000, everyone here should believe. I'm calling everyone here to believe the gospel. Hyper-Calvinists would say that's throwing pearls before the swine. You don't know if they can believe. 
Wait till they believe, then talk, then talk to them. So Calvinist said hyper-Calvinism is wrong. Or, uh, Spurgeon said hyper-Calvinism is wrong. Spurgeon was a Calvinist. He wrote about it. He preached about it. He, his first, I believe his first Sunday at Metropolitan Tabernacle, he preached a series of ser- five sermons, one for each point of Calvinism. I mean, you can say he didn't know what he was talking about. So that, that's the thing about some people who say he wasn't a Calvinist. You have to believe they didn't know what he was talking about. So John R. Rice says he wasn't a Calvinist because he didn't, he only had two choices, Arminianism and Calvinism. And so he just chose Calvinism. Which, if that's true, then maybe we shouldn't call him the Prince of Preachers. Yeah, if he's, if he can't be smart as the average Bible college graduate who I've talked to, then why is he so great? Like, why is he the Prince of Preachers if he can't figure out a third way? So he was a Calvinist. He knew what it meant. He read the Puritans. He read all the Puritans who were almost all Calvinists. He explicitly wrote, preached, printed Calvinism, but he was not a hyper-Calvinist and he said so. So what some people like John R. Rice say is, well, look, he's opposing hyper-Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism is Calvinism. So they have a sort of logical circle, but Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism are different. So Spurgeon said, I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. I believe the gospel should go to everybody. Not everybody will receive it. Not everybody is elect, but it should go to everybody. So Spurgeon condemned hyper-Calvinism. Andrew Fuller condemned it. William Carey condemned it. Adonai Judson condemned it. Yet were amazing evangelists. George Whitfield, five-point Calvinist. Whitfield was probably the, at that time, he was the most um, known preacher in the world ever. I think Billy Graham surpassed him, but that was about it. So Whitfield was a five-point Calvinist, and we know this partly because John Wesley was an Arminian. And John Wesley and Whitfield worked together closely. So this is the 1700s, First Great Awakening, 1700s. Wesley's an Arminian. Whitfield's a Calvinist. They work together. They preach together. But eventually, Whitfield was too Calvinist. And Arminian, I mean, uh, John Wesley was so convinced that it was wrong that at one point he handed out anti-Calvinist papers in the service of Whitfield's church. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, and Whitfield was like, okay, I don't think we can work together anymore. But they split over Calvinism. Mm-hmm. So Whitfield says, I'm a Calvinist. You're not a Calvinist. We can't work together. But Whitfield was not a hyper-Calvinist because he preached to everybody. So we can see the difference there between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. But what happened, John Rice is, is one of the most prominent persons to, to say this. He said Calvinism, and he goes through the five points, means that God picks who will be saved and then forces them to be saved. And Rice uses that language a lot of being compelled or forced or the choice being taken away. And man had to do it. Right. And that's the irresistible grace. Right. Which if it's irresistible grace, it kind of, if you don't yeah. look into the writings yeah. and you just take it at, from Tulip, it does, yeah, it, it could like get that. that. Yeah. So it sounds like irresistible means you couldn't resist it if you wanted to. That's why they changed it to effectual calling. So Rice said, well, if you can't resist it, then what's the point of anything? If God forces you to be saved, then there's no choices. There's no morality. It's fatalism. It's every command's a lie, and you just have to do what you have to do. The problem is that's not what Calvinism teaches. Calvinism explicitly says God changes your heart, then you want to be saved. So the what people use a lot of times as anti, anti-Calvinist is in Revelation what, 21, 22, whosoever will, let whosoever will come. Mm-hmm. And they're like, see? Calvinism can't be true. But Calvinists explicitly say that whosoever wants to be saved, if you want to be saved, 
then God has already changed your heart and you can be saved. So the desire to be saved is a result of a changed heart. Right, yeah. So I think R.C. Sprouls has a pretty good description of or how he views it. So he says, The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills, so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing, more than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Christ and embrace him joyfully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, R.C. Sproul is the reason he's a great teacher. Right. If you don't think that's what Calvinism is, you've created your own definition. That's what Spurgeon taught. That's what Calvin taught. That's what everyone who's a real Calvinist, that's what they teach. R.C. Sproul, you don't get more Calvinist than R.C. Sproul. Right. Like he was, he's basically John Calvin reincarnated. <laughs> yeah. So you're not dragged to Christ. And that's what John R. Rice explicitly taught, that you're forced to become a Christian. What? Who wants that? But Calvin and everyone after him said, your heart is changed. You're, you're regenerated. And then because you have a new heart, you say, I would love to believe in Christ. I would love to follow Christ. Please save me. Mm-hmm. And you willingly and gladly accept Christ. If you, you may not agree with that. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's not heresy. Right. Yeah. And I think it's important talking about, you know, if you, if you don't listen to what they're saying and you create your own definitions, there's a danger of debating something that doesn't exist. Right. And I think it's not just theologically, but in general, if you're presenting another position, if you're not presenting it in a favorable, in a fair way, Mm-hmm. then it's either ignorance or deceit. Worst, yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's almost like you have to protect people from the truth of what the position is. Yeah. And if, yeah, you, if you're not willing to do the research and learn what someone believes, you don't really care about them. So like the Bible says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor means represent what they say accurately. It means do the work, say it in a way that they would agree with. And a Calvinist would never say that anyone is forced to be safe. No Calvinist would ever say that. Yeah, and that doesn't require agreeing with them just by presenting right. their argument favorably. Right. We can disagree and still speak the truth. Right. And we know, and so for independent Baptists, it comes down to evangelism. And Rice believed and men who followed him believed that Calvinism kills evangelism. Currently today, guys on Twitter, I see it all the time, talk about Calvinism. No Calvinist will win souls. I've heard that from multiple people. No Calvinist will win souls. The problem with that is the missions movement of the 1700s, 1800s was run by Calvinists. Right. William Carey, Adonai Judson, Spurgeon was a Calvinist, Whitfield was a Calvinist. Like You name a lot of the great evangelists, they're Calvinists. Right. Yeah, so the statement that it kills evangelism doesn't stand up to cursory historical scrutiny. Right, and so what, they do, what, what Rice and others would do was, well, they weren't real Calvinists. Spurgeon wasn't a real Calvinist. He was a Calvinist on paper. When they say real Calvinist, they mean hyper-Calvinist. Right. Because that's real Calvinism. Right. Anything lower than that is soft Calvinism. And it gets back yeah. to that. It's the, it's a, or a super version of the right. plain Calvinism. Yeah. So Rice and many would, would say that most people in America mean, when they say Calvinist, they just mean eternal security. And they just mean you can't lose your salvation or you don't, you don't work for your salvation, which Calvinists do believe that. But that's not Calvinism. That's just basic bible you know protestant or orthodox a calvinist believes more than that but it does so how if you believe if you're a calvinist you believe god elected a certain group of people and he died for those group of people and no one else and that god has to change their heart before they're saved why would you witness to them so this is the logic of people who are against it right. why would you witness you're not going to ch- god's already decided you can't change it he 
If someone's not elect, why preach to them? But that's the logic of a human. Mm-hmm. Calvinists follow the Bible. We may disagree with how they interpret it, but they believe the Bible. And the Bible says, preach the gospel to everyone. Make disciples of all nations. And they believe that. Yeah, and speaking to Calvinists, in their opinion, knowing that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to do the regeneration, it emboldens them in evangelism. Because they know that it's not under their own power. They don't have to go out and have debates to convince people. Right. It's, it's not up all to their work, abilities. Right. It's not up to their abilities. It's up to the work of the gospel, of the Holy Spirit. So why wouldn't it be easier for them to evangelize? Yeah. So Adonai Judson goes to what, Burma for seven years, no converts. Why did he stay? Because he was a Calvinist and he said, God has elected somebody and eventually I'm going to find him. So I'm going to preach to everybody until I find that person that God has elected. And when I find the person that God has elected, they will become a believer. And he eventually found someone and they became a believer. Now, we would maybe disagree with that logic, but the Calvinist logic produced soul winners and evangelists because they knew that someone would get saved, that God had elected them. Carrie, when he went to India, he it was rough. Like, why didn't he quit? He didn't see results. He didn't quit because he's like, God's going to save somebody. They're elected. The irresistible call will draw them. It'll change their heart. They will want to believe. I'm going to preach the gospel until I get to that person. I've heard current modern Calvinists who are in Iraq and Syria, which is about the hardest place to preach the gospel if you can survive. And they say, we're not worried. If God's elected them, they'll get saved. So we're going to preach the gospel in Syria until we see salvation. So the Calvinism kills evangelism is another way of saying, I don't know what Calvinism is. And what I, what I've noticed in the trends in independent Baptists, they all go back to John R. Rice's definition. So he wrote a book called Predestined for Hell, question mark, no, exclamation mark, <laughs> exclamation mark. And in it, he gives a defense. Some of it's good. I agree with some of it. I agree with his basic concept of being against Calvinism. But then he represents Calvinism in a unfair way, in an inaccurate way. And then he reinterprets Spurgeon and others. And tries to use Spurgeon's writings to disprove Calvinism, but he actually, you know, cuts his own throat on that. Because some of the quotes he has from Spurgeon prove Calvinism. <laughs> and Rice, just he wasn't familiar. And it was because he didn't know any Calvinists. And he just, he read a few books, which were good good books by Calvinists, but he didn't know how to interpret them. He didn't know how to ask questions. He, he just, he, it was the old trap of being the smartest person in the room and no one challenged him in the echo chamber. And now we, here we are 50 years later with the same arguments and the same errors. And there's this sort of clash that if you're a Calvinist, you don't care about evangelism. So if you care about evangelism, you're anti-Calvinist. And Calvinists are heretics. And I've seen multiple people say that Calvin's not in heaven. And that if, like, what? Like, they believe the gospel the same way we believe the gospel. Right. Calvin says, so Calvin's institutes... He doesn't get the predestination, all the Calvinist stuff, until like halfway through. In the first half, he's like, you're a sinner, God's holy, Jesus died for your sins, repent of your sins and believe and you'll be saved. And then he gets into predestination. So he sort of explains what happens and then why it happens. And he always said, you need to go to the nursery school of the gospel before you go to the college of predestination. Which is a good way of looking at it. Like Calvinists believe the gospel just like we do. 
They preached the gospel. And John R. Rice knew that somewhere because he printed Spurgeon's sermons. And he edited edited the Calvinism out of him. But he wouldn't have edited Calvinism out if he didn't think Spurgeon was basically right. He wouldn't have preached, put a heretic in there. Right. Rice said that Calvin was one of the greatest theological minds ever. Highly recommended Calvin. That doesn't sound like heresy. And it's sort of this extreme view based on a misrepresentation that causes a division within Christianity between two believers. And I don't think Rice meant to, but division is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Division is the work of Satan. And so if you can know better and you don't know better, you are following the agenda of Satan by dividing the church, dividing believers. Christ unites, sin divides. And ignorance, that happens. There's always divisions over ignorance. But if you persist in ignorance and you refuse to listen to the truth and you maintain error, you're, you're creating division. And so, I don't know, some of these guys, the Bible says a, a heretic, and heretic there means a divisive person. You warn, and you resist, and then you separate from. And I think some of these independent Baptist leaders who are condemning Calvinism need to be fired from their jobs. And so, like, to, to be specific, the sword of the Lord, which was Rice's paper, the sword has come out with, with evangelistic supports and others saying Calvinism is evil. Right. And sells in their bookstore, Matthew Henry and Jonathan Edwards, who were so explicitly Calvinist that if you don't think they were Calvinists, you, you, there's no way you could ever know what Calvinism was. Jonathan Edwards has one of the best defenses of Calvinism you could find. So why are they selling his stuff? Can't be that bad. So like there's this... There's this internal inconsistency, and I don't know. I don't know their motives, but let's say their motives are the best. The motives are let's, let's win people to the Lord. Let's build evangelism. They are negligent, and I feel like if you have an education and you're the leader of a publication or you travel widely as a evangelist, this is the nice thing about being a pastor of a local independent Baptist church is I don't need to be liked by these guys. Right. <laughs> A little bit of freedom. So I can say things like if you're a traveling evangelist and you don't know what Calvinism is and you speak against Calvinism, you need to stop. Stop traveling and stop saying those things until you correct your errors. And certainly don't support Matthew Henry, Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards while you're condemning Calvinism. It's just as logical. It's just sort of painfully ignorance. And so what I see is a lot of young guys... They go to these, they, they listen to these guys and they say, here, Calvinism is bad from leaders, but they don't know what Calvinism is. Then they come across Calvinism, maybe through Spurgeon, because Spurgeon was recommended to them, or they listen to, you know, Martin Lloyd Jones or something like that, and they realize Calvinism is not bad. Okay, so you're a young guy who's been told by your leaders Calvinism is evil. You find out Calvinism is not evil. And I've talked to these guys, they look back at their leaders and they say, one of two things you lied to us. Or you don't know what you're talking about. Right. And that gets back to presenting the opposition in the most favorable light. Yeah, because if you don't have the ability to present Spurgeon's views as Spurgeon saw them, I don't want to learn from you. And that's what these young guys are saying is you don't know what Calvinism is or you lied about it. It's sort of like the, the most negative one. Mm -hmm. But let's just say you don't know what it is. Why are you teaching me? Because it's not that hard to find out what Calvinism is. Type in what is Calvinism into Google <laughs> 
and read some reputable sources. Read Spurgeon's own writings. Spurgeon gives a good presentation. Read Jonathan Edwards. Read Calvin. Like, these are all accessible. R.C. Sproul. Yeah, R.C. Sproul is great. Very simple, modern. So when leaders misrepresent it, they're cutting their own throats. They're, They're undermining their own ministries. And they say that young guys are leaving independent Baptists because they want to redefine it or they don't like the standards. But a lot of guys are leaving it because they don't think the leaders know what they're talking about. I mean, in a practical sense, we have a member of our church who's a Calvinist. Right. If we had had an evangelist come in that spoke out against mm-hmm. Calvinism, said it was heresy when he was coming to our church to before he became a member. Right. I don't think he'd still be here. No. Why would he be? So then right. we would have run off someone mm-hmm. for a non-gospel issue, yeah. something that's not... is not one of the fundamentals. Not one of the fundamentals. Yeah. Not something that is a issue to divide over. Right. But we've caused division. Yeah. So if you believe that God elects before creation unconditionally, or you believe that God elects based on faith before creation, by the time we get around to our lives, it's done. Right. It's either one way or the other. It doesn't matter anymore. If you believe that God regenerates the heart and then people believe, or you believe that that you first have faith, then you're regenerated, either way, you have to believe the gospel. So practically, what's the difference? The difference is nothing. You preach the gospel, whether you're Calvinist or non-Calvinist, and either the Holy Spirit works beforehand or not. Either way, the person believes and, and, and you move forward as Christians. So we're, our church is not a Calvinist church. Our statement of faith is not Calvinist. Our statement of faith is simple. The Bible's true. God is who he says he is. Salvation comes by faith and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. By grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's not a Calvinist, non-Calvinist issue. Right. And it's, our statement of faith is not anti-Calvinist either, though. No. Our statement of faith came off another independent Baptist website, and it's pretty much the same as every other independent Baptist church that I know of, because that's not what Christianity is not about Calvinism or non-Calvinism. That's a minor point that we disagree on. And it doesn't affect evangelism. It doesn't affect baptism. It doesn't affect this. So here's another thing. The reformed versus Calvinism. Yes. What's the difference? That's actually a tough question. Okay. So the reformation, the reformation happened 1517. Luther rejects the Catholic church. And the reformation is basically the Protestant church against the Catholic church. So at its core, the Reformation is those five solas, grace, faith, Christ, God's glory, and the scripture. Okay, so that's the Reformation, which means it's not really Calvinism. It's those five principles. So Arminius, who be, who created Arminianism or saw Arminianism, he would have agreed that with those, and he was Reformed. But he was one of the few. Right. So when you say Reformed... Or the Reformation, almost all of them would, would be what we call Calvinist. Right. And a few of them would have been non-Calvinist. So when we look back, when you say Reformed theology, you're basically saying doesn't, Calvinism. Yeah, it doesn't necessitate Calvinism, right. but it's a good guess that it's Calvinism. Yeah. It's, so you do have Reformed Arminians. So the Free Will Baptist, Free Will Baptists have a lot of Reformed Arminians. So they would be Reformed, but they wouldn't be Calvinist. But generally speaking, shorthand, Reformed theology is Calvinism, but better to just say Calvinism. And when you say Calvinism, it really just, it's referring to this, the gospel part, this, the order of salvation. It's not referring to baby baptisms. So Reformed theology is a broader term. Calvinism refers to Calvin's view of the order of salvation. 
election calling. Reform theology has a bigger term, uh, but none of them really are referring to the way the church is organized, who gets to be a member, who gets baptized, how they get baptized, the relationship of the church and the state. Those are separate issues that obviously the Reformed thinkers and, and the Reformation dealt with. But when you say Reformed theology and when you say Calvinism, you're really talking about the order of salvation and not so much. So some people are like, I'm not a Calvinist or I'm not Reformed because I believe in separation of church and state. It's like, talk about two different things at that point. Right. Yeah, so it's uh, it's an it's an unnecessary battle. So going over the history, so it's history and hope. So what's the implications today for independent Baptists and Calvinism, given our history of leadership being anti-Calvinist, currently people being anti-Calvinist. Right. What what's the what should the independent Baptist take away from Calvinism? Yeah, I think John R. Rice has some good advice. He said Calvin was a great theologian. You can learn from Calvin. So following that advice, independent Baptists should not be afraid of Calvinism. Read Calvin, read Spurgeon, read Jonathan Edwards. I've read them all. I'm not a Calvinist. It will not make you a Calvinist. And then realize that Calvinists have, have for the past four or 500 years, have produced a lot of great stuff. And they're still producing great stuff. And if there's a fear of Calvinism, we're cutting ourselves off from tons of good material. So let's read the Bible, then read Calvinist and compare the two. So the hope moving forward is that independent Baptists will be able to learn from the wider church, both in America and historically, and benefit from people who we may have written off before because they're Calvinists. And that's been the independent Baptist way. Despite John R. Rice's misinformation, he still used Calvinist. And to this day, we're still quoting Spurgeon. We're still quoting Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry's, and probably every independent Baptist pastor's library. William Carey's a hero. Adonai Judson's a hero. And they should be. They should be because they believe the Bible was 100% true. They preached the same exact gospel. They sought to build the church, build the kingdom. They just disagree with some with some second, kind of secondhand points. And I believe independent Baptists have the ability to read somebody and disagree with that person and not be corrupted. And that's what needs to happen. Like we need to learn we can stay independent Baptist and learn from other people. And if someone becomes a Calvinist, they're still going to preach the same gospel. They're still going to believe the same Bible. They're still going to be Baptist. There's no real change that's going to happen. We can look at history and see that verified by numerous Calvinists who are also Baptists and also gospel preachers. Right, so it's been History and Hope. We'll include some suggested reading in the episode notes. And if you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com.